Welcome to season two, episode 14 of Man of the Making, with four monk, Rajan Shankara, and myself, Rockus. Thank you for joining me, Rajan, and over to you. I am ready. All right. Last episode, we dove into the complicated subject of, of figuring out the world and what it meant. And Rokas, for you, I remember that was uh, a pretty wild experience, so much yeah. so that you, what did you do after that? What you bought? I even book? went and bought the book. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now, too bad I didn't have an affiliate link because I could have made, made yep. the percentage off that. And for sure. <laughs> All right. So, hey, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for listening to Man in the Making. If you have any feedback, you can email Raj at rajanshankara.com. That email will be in the show notes. Let us know what you think of the show. Uh, if you're listening on Apple, please give a review and it helps other people find the show if you think they should find it. This will be a closing um, explanation in this episode about Jordan Peterson's uh, work regarding chaos and order, the meaning of life, uh, his work maps of meaning, and we'll go into a little bit of 12 Rules for Life, his latest book. I wanted to start with chapter two. We have a beautiful explanation about how we deal with novelty, okay? So the chapter, chapter two in Maps of Meaning is called Three Levels of Analysis. Human beings are prepared biologically to respond to anomalous information, to novelty. This instinctive response includes redirection of attention, generation of emotion, fear first, then curiosity, and behavioral compulsion, cessation of ongoing activity, and then active approach and exploration. This pattern of instinctive response drives learning, particularly but not exclusively the learning of appropriate behavior. All such learning takes place or takes place generally as a consequence of contact with novelty or anomaly. Okay, so Jordan Peterson begins to now explain the major aspect of life altering situations anomaly uh, is just that which you didn't expect um, the unknown <clears throat> he goes on to say what is novel is of course dependent on what is known and is necessarily defined in opposition to what is known furthermore what is known is always known conditionally since human knowledge is necessarily limited our conditional knowledge insofar as that knowledge is relevant for the regulation of emotion, consists of our models of emotional significance of the present, defined in opposition to an idealized, hypothetical, or fan fantasied future state. We evaluate the unbearable present in relationship to the ideal future. We act to transform where we are into where we would like to be. And that last sentence really ties it all together we evaluate this unbearable present, right? So where we are now, and we transform it into where we would like to be, okay? So the where we are turns into where we would like to be. And as we were trying to understand and talk about last episode was that's every decision you'll ever make, right? I started recording this podcast with Rokas because we were not recording the podcast. And so the current where we were was not recording and where we wanted to be was recording. And so Rokas then had to act, press a few buttons, and now here we are. So the biggest part of this transformation is the bigger question, not the smaller questions. So the smaller questions, the more mundane is, I have to wake up, so what time do I set my alarm? Um, I have to get to work at this time, so how fast should I go on the highway? And then the, uh, the more complicated, meaningful representation of this expression of life is I need to lose 30 pounds. What do I need to do to do that? What do I need to stop eating? 
what do I need to start doing during my daily exercise to help get to the end goal of losing 30 pounds? And for some people, that means losing 100 pounds. And 300,000 people die a year of obesity. So that's something that we should probably think about. Coronavirus only killed like... I heard in America it's past 10,000 now. Yeah. So in America, let's say we got to 10,000 yesterday, I think. Okay, so 10,000 for a virus versus 300,000 in the U.S. alone. 300,000, okay, every year. So... For obesity, was that? Yeah, yeah, being... being having too much adipose tissue or fat. And those are some of the, that's a good perspective on coronavirus. If you think it's taken out a lot of people, just think about what obesity is taking out. And no one's really, you know, no one's creating any crazy systems over that. But anyway, that's another episode. He goes on to say, The domain of the known and the domain of the unknown can reasonably be regarded as permanent elements of human experience, even of the human environment. Regardless of culture, place, and time, human individuals are forced to adapt to the fact of culture and the fact of its ultimate insufficiency. The human brain and the higher animal brain appears therefore to have adapted itself to the external presence of these two places. The brain has one mode of operation when in explored territory and another when in unexplored territory. In the unexplored world, caution expressed in fear and behavioral, behavioral immobility initially predominates but may be superseded by curiosity expressed in hope, excitement, and in creative exploratory behavior. Creative exploration of the unknown and consequent generation of knowledge is construction or update of patterns of behavior and representation, such that the unknown is transformed from something terrifying and compelling into something beneficial, or at least irrelevant the presence of capacity for such creative exploration and knowledge generation may be regarded as the third and final permanent element of human experience so in addition to the known and unknown he suggests that creative exploration is the third element that we will all experience now this uh last a statement here about creative exploration of the unknown and the cons- and the consequent generation of knowledge that idea is something that's very special to me um and that should be very special to everyone because what he is asking is that you go from fear to curiosity faster than the mind wants you to and in fact if you can transcend fear and go straight to curiosity any thoughts on that rokas any i I bet you're thinking about something Uh, i my mind just keeps wondering it's bad i it's hard for me to focus i'm just in that state where as soon as i get thought, i just my mind just wanders on that thought and then i realize that i've wondered and then i go back to listening to you and it's kind of I missed some things and then yeah I just get another thought and then go off and that for I don't know my mind's not in a focused state it's like well is it called the monkey brain where it's just it's I think it's just I need to meditate so I can it's, it's not easy this is perfect for the podcast by the way because I'm going to talk to you and everyone else right okay now. yeah okay you and you're you're a perfect example of the listener. So 
everyone needs to hear that they're not alone in not understanding this stuff. Like this is complicated stuff and paying attention to it is hard. And so I, I do, I do a, my, I do a, an effort, a, a, an attempt to break it down easily and find the easiest patterns of this. But then us talking about it is going to be the most beneficial part, not the actual reading of it, but, but me going back and saying, instead of being fearful of, of stuff, I want Jordan Peterson in, in this work wants you to be curious of it instead of, and transcend fear and go straight to the part of you that can conquer whatever you put your mind to. And that's what he's talking about. And that's what I want you to comment on, because that's going to be the thing that you remembered I said. So you just need to focus. And you get better at focus with practice. And maybe your mind has some clutter in it and some debris and, and the listener is driving and paying attention to traffic or something like that. But that last thing that, that I said is very clear. So from your, from your heart and, and visualizing what I'm talking about as I go, if I said fear of an experience and curiosity of an experience, what images come to your mind about your life? So that reminds me of where the emotions of fear and excitement are the same. So if you're feeling fear, you can rethink of that as you're actually excited. And then that's one way of, it's, there's more detail to that, but that's how I remember it. Um, that's one way of potentially overcoming fear. Yeah, I mean, what we have to do is realize that you have a choice, like the brain has a choice, according to Peterson, instead of instinctively reacting with fear, like the fight or flight, I guess, in psychology, you can react to the other option, which is the fight option. But instead of being aggressive about it, um, Peterson uses the word curiosity, which is a great word for it because it's like a cat, it's like a child. It's like the creative exploration of life, right? We're just, we're just kind of crawling around in the dark a little bit, trying to make it a little bit more clear. And what, what I'm asking you to do with images of fear and curiosity, I'm asking you to kind of think about how that represents in your life. What could you have feared that you approached uh, courageously or with curiosity, or have you been able to, have you not been able to do that? Oh, actually true. Um, man, a lot of things actually, because that's okay. the thing with fear. In order to overcome it, you need that curiosity because through it you can learn. And by learning like what, what happened that, that made you fearful, um, yeah, through yeah, curiosity, learn. And then through that learning, you can learn to overcome it. Whereas without curiosity, you would just stay fearful. Yeah. Well, not only would you stay fearful, but without, without a sense of, of knowing that you can do it, um, you'll, you'll always be thinking that you need to react with fear or your mind won't have any other options. So we have to teach people that you cannot you don't have to be fearful that's that's the main takeaway from that you don't you don't have to be fearful you can you can approach life with courage and that's what courage is you can you can replace fear with courage and choose to be to be the explorer right? Creative exploration. And so let's say, what's a, what's a good example of fear? Um, okay. You look in your bank account and it's, it's, it's not high enough to pay the bill for that month. Okay. So you could, you could be fearful. 
right? Oh my God, how am I going to buy food and pay for utilities and stuff like that? Or you can start to get pretty damn creative and you can say, well, forget fear. I'm going to approach this courageously. Where can I get the funds? How can I start making money on the side? What can I do? Can I sell something? Can I, can I, can I explore more options? Do I have a backup fund? Do I have a friend who I can lean on for this month and then pay him back eventually? You know, there, there are other options. Can I even talk about this with my spouse? How do I explain this? You know, and it's like hiding it is even worse. So those are more options. Those are, that's being creative and that's exploring with hope instead of with, with fear and, and, uh, you know, imagining that the world is now going to end because this month your bank account shows it's in the negative or whatever. And, and, and you have to be creative if you're going to survive. You have to be hopeful and courageous if you're going to make it through this damn life. Um, so linking some things together, um, think of things that happen in a way you can look at them as an adventure or as new experiences. Since something we talked about before, you don't know whether what happens is a good or bad thing. So you can interpret it as, even though it may seem bad, just interpret it as good and just think that from it, you'll experience new experiences that you wouldn't have otherwise experienced. Beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it, that's exactly right. That's novelty. And the world is full of infinite novelty and the bank account being low. I think that's a good example. The, the, the bank account being low financial insecurity and instability is kind of exciting. If you think about it the right way, if you think about it the other way, it's, it's pretty damn fearful, right? It's, it's, it sucks. Nobody wants that. But now that it's here, what do we do with it? I think that's the ultimate um, conclusion. Now that it's here, what do we do with it? So he finishes the explanation of the chapter, the summary of the chapter in uh, this complicated paragraph here. So bear with me. Mythological representations of the world, which are representations of reality as a forum for action, portray the dynamic interrelationship between all three elements of human experience. The eternal known, unknown, the eternal unknown, nature, metaphorically speaking, creative and destructive, source and destination of all determinate things, is generally ascribed as an effectively ambivalent feminine character, or as the mother and eventual devourer of everyone and everything. Now, the eternal known, in contrast, culture, defined territory, tyrannical and protective, predictable, the disciplined and restrictive, cumulative consequence of heroic or exploratory behavior is typically considered masculine in contradistinction to mother nature. The eternal knower, finally, the process that mediates between the known and the unknown is the knight who slays the dragon of chaos, the hero who replaces disorder and confusion with clarity and certainty, the sun god who eternally slays the forces of darkness, and the word that engenders creation of the cosmos. How's that for imagery? Um, could you break it down? <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorite things in the world, that paragraph right there. It's uh, mythological representations of the world are the, the mythological dragon. So the world has history, right? World history. And if you were in class, let me, let me be honest with you. If teachers understood this really well, man, your history class would be the best. You would love history because everyone loves a good evil, a good versus evil movie. Everyone loves 
the dark night and the 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 bright sun shining the next day everyone identifies with that theme of good versus evil because it's in our it's in our history it's in our dna so that's what he's saying is is how we need to understand how the world is represented in mythology to read that sentence backwards um and those those representations of the hero the great mother the the secure and safe father um the evil sister um you know the cruella de vil with the good puppies that we want to save uh the 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 dictatorship of a country versus the openness and conscientiousness of its of its youth um, that yearn for freedom all of those are representations of the world in mythology and religious doctrine um and and stories throughout time have tried to explain that that's the way the world is with with a story you know the parting of the seas let my people go and th those are all symbolic uh, of ways to behave. And what this paragraph is asking you to do is to understand the distinction of the three elements of the world, to understand the known as order, protection, predictability, discipline, and to understand the unknown, mother nature, um, the great devourer, right? The death, chaos, destruction, you know, that which could kill you or save you through nutrients. And then the third element, the knower, right? The known, the unknown, and the knower, right? The knower is you. You're the experiencer. You're the one that sees it all. And you're the one, you're the knight who slays the dragon of chaos, the hero who replaces disorder with clarity, who eternally slays the forces of darkness. And that's why he's asking you to be courageous hopeful and creative instead of cowardly, fearful, and depressed. Because the world will eat you alive if you're not strong. And it, it eats people alive every day. And, and God knows I work with them. You know, part of my main job is to say this paragraph to people. Like, this is the world. You, I don't deny your suffering. No one, no one, and Peterson's work is all about expression of, yes, the world is suffering. We get it. But that's kind of an, an excuse. Like, let's get over the fact that the world is suffering. Okay, that's what, that's what Buddhism is all about. Like, we get it, okay? The world sucks. And it's going to confront you with conflict at every chance it gets. And you have a choice. You can either bow down, fall to your knees and admit defeat and, 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 and cry about it. Or you can suck it up and get moving. And Peterson says, if you have a choice, I, I prefer you get moving. I prefer you take out your mythological sword, right? Your symbolic sword of courage, hope, curiosity, and creativity and start, and, and start acting like, a, like someone who matters. Start acting like the, the good in your story against the evil. Don't act like the victim. That, that's, what, that's what that paragraph is all about.
And that's really what this book is all about. Let's jump over to Peterson's 12 rules for life and explain at that point when we agree in other words, is that what what Rokas did you should? What do you think about that? All that? Does that uh, make yeah, sense? yeah, makes sense completely and very true. Yeah. All right. So, so, so since maps of meaning covers all of that, like let, let's let's call it quits on maps of meaning. That's what it's all about. Reading the book is a very special experience because he starts to go into the details. But that one paragraph explains the entire book, okay? But he goes into separate chapters about feminine nature, about masculine nature, about the three elements. He breaks it all down. This is what the great mother is like on one side. This is what the destructive aspect of nature is like on the other side. This is what the masculine nature is like when it's behaved. And this is what masculinity is when it's ruined. And then he says, this is who you are as the hero. And he tells stories all about it. And he uses mythology throughout history to explain different ways. He goes in through Zen. He goes into the Bodhisattvas and Buddhism. He goes into what meditation and enlightenment means and the transformations that we go through in consciousness to become that hero and, and, and specific ways to be. And his publisher was like, probably like, what the hell, man? This is way too complicated. Can you just break it down in 12 rules? And he did. So a few years ago, he released 12 rules for life. And he has a forward and an overture, like an introduction of that, of, of maps of meaning and saying, this is what the hell life is all about. It's suffering. And then the book is, the 12 rules are, here's what you're going to do about it. So rule number one, stand up straight with your shoulders back, right? Once you, once you stand up straight with your shoulders back, your spine has a chance to uh, send um, different compounds in the brain throughout the body appropriately. So dopamine, serotonin. Um, it all relates to confidence and self-esteem. And once you're sitting up, standing up straight and that spine is straight, you actually feel better. Rule number two, treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping. Okay, so that what we used to say in the monastery is treat yourself like a saint. So treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. So we often care about other people more than we do ourselves. And if you're in that, that section of people, you need to treat yourself like someone worth a damn. And if, you, if you're coming up against chaos and evil and problems and a negative bank account, right? you need to treat yourself better. You need to say, well, how do I become the person who has more money? Or if you're in a bad relationship, how do I become the person who deserves a good relationship? And you first have to have that positive self-perspective before, before looking at the world uh, and trying to change it. You first have to change yourself. Rule number three, make friends with people who want the best for you. You would think that would be obvious, but it's not. I can't tell you how many people are in circles and have relationships that are just so shitty. It's so toxic. It's, it's ridiculous. Don't do that. Get out of that and be around people that are actually better than you so that your own standard goes up every time you interact with them. And if that's not the case, if you do have some people you don't want to let go of, Try to save them. Try to be that person for them that, that keeps their standard high. But whatever you do, don't lower your standards for someone else. Rule number four, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to someone who someone else is today. Yeah, absolutely. So look at yourself. Don't compare yourself uh, unfairly and say, well, 
um, I, I still haven't progressed this week. And it's like, well, who were you last year? That's a much better comparison of progress, of measures of progress than who you are within the week or within the month. And my guru used to say that same thing. And I'd be pissed about something like I couldn't, oh, my meditation isn't going well around the 30 minute mark. And he's like, yeah, well, last month you couldn't meditate for 10 minutes. Now you're complaining about how you can't meditate for 30 minutes. That's pretty damn good. Okay. So perspective is everything in your comparisons of yourself. Rule number five, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. This is a good one. So it's talking about, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Boundaries. This is so, this is such a good rule. Boundaries are so important. So what he's saying is, and do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them, is when your children, as he, so he's talking to parents specifically, when your children do something stupid or that, that is wrong, you correct them. Don't resent them. Don't hold a grudge because that's your fault then. Actually correct them and say, hey, this is not how we behave. And they, they fix the pattern. But if, if you don't lay that boundary down and they don't fix the pattern and they keep doing stupid things and you don't like them anymore, whose fault is that? Now, in a relationship, in the very beginning, that's the most important time to lay boundaries. And, and, and I have some clients who haven't laid boundaries in 15 years of marriage. And guess what? you're going to end up resenting the other person because they step all over you. And it's like, well, when did you set those boundaries? Like, when did you tell them not to step over you that way? And they're like, Oh, um, uh, well, I guess I figured that was obvious. Oh, you figured it was obvious. Did you? Well, it's not. Boundaries are not obvious. If you don't like something, tell them. If you don't, what, what do you expect? They're not going to know any better. You're not wearing a sign that says how you feel. You have to explain to someone like they're wearing a blindfold and you're leading them across a room. You'd have to explain every little detail. And that's how you set up proper boundaries. Because it's normal for people to, to overstep them because chances are you haven't ever actually made that in an actual boundary you may wish you had but you 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 can't blame them you have to now blame yourself rule number six set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world so don't don't judge people before you judge yourself that's just dumb when I used to do this in the monastery the first few years, cause I was an idiot. Um, I used to, I used to blame other people about everything. And my guru was like, yeah, but don't you do some of that stupid stuff too? And it was like, Oh yeah. Whoops. I'm the asshole. I'm the one who, needs to work on myself and the world will just be as it is and just leave the world alone. Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. And the funny thing is it's ironic because when you set yourself in order and you stop judging people, but you judge yourself, right? That's what my book, my first book is all about. Everything is your fault. When you realize that everything is your fault, you, you lose the, the motivation to blame anyone else you'll never blame anyone else once you understand that it's your fault i had an interesting client experience yesterday that it was basically a, a woman had she was learning that process we're on our third session and she's learning the process of her everything being her fault and, and she's been married to her husband for over 40 years 
and they're they're just now realizing all of the stuff they haven't uh all of the boundaries they haven't set up and they're blaming each other and criticizing each other not realizing that they themselves can can blame each other blame themselves and then the problems will go away so we're working on that and it's painful to understand and hear this but she said okay we've got everything good this past week like it's been it's it's been a good week compared to the last 10 years and we actually love each other again and it's a beautiful thing but it's like we got into this one situation and uh i blamed him for washing the vegetables incorrectly and granted maybe he did wash the vegetables incorrectly so she said how do i blame myself when he did do something wrong and it's like, okay, well, what did he do wrong? Well, he didn't do what I wanted him to do the way I wanted him to do it. Oh, so did you tell him how you wanted him to do it before he did it? And then he disobeyed you? Well, no, I just figured, oh, you figured he knew what you were thinking? Well, yeah. Well, stop being a dumb dumb. In order to take responsibility, you have to change the timeline. It's not necessarily your fault that he chose to wash the vegetables a certain way. It's your fault that you didn't set it up correctly in the future, like before it even happened. And it's like, oh yeah, I could have mentioned when we were at the store, oh hey, I'd really like to protect these from people touching them and giving them to the animals. I'd like them to be washed this way. And you know what? What's even better? She should have said, I'll do it. And those are all ways to res take responsibility. Okay, and that's what Peterson's rule number six is all about. Rule number seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. So uh, that's a complicated way of saying Try not to take, um, try not to do what is pleasurable in the immediate. Try to do what is difficult. Because what is difficult is usually meaningful. And what is immediate gratifying, what, is, what causes immediate gratification is usually not meaningful. Now, there's a balance there, obviously. But he's talking about vices. He's talking about before you make yourself feel good in the immediate, try to earn it with something meaningful, with something extremely satisfying in the long term, but and, and not something fleeting. And that's a complex one. There's a lot of situations I could go into. There's a lot of examples, but we just don't have that much time. But that's a famous Stoic principle. Again, Peterson in 12 Rules for Life does not create new things. No one rarely creates new things. I could go back 2,000 years to some Hindu sage or some Buddhist monk who said, everything is your fault. Um, but there's, there's new ways of explaining things. There's modern examples, okay? Rule number seven, uh, a good modern example for that is pornography, okay? Pornography is not meaningful. It is expedient. It is fleeting pleasure. We want to pursue what is meaningful. Rule number eight, Tell the truth or at least don't lie. Okay, so this is a pretty biblical example. And then beyond that, it's just a moral righteousness that we all might want to consider. Be honest, be forthright and forthcoming. At the very minimum, don't lie. Rule number nine, assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't. Humility, have humility. Now, something that I learned from um, 
exercise exercise science professor doctor um what is his name brad schoenfeld not brad schoenfeld but that is uh mike is israel brad schoenfeld is pretty awesome dr mike israel said once when you're in a conversation with someone and imagine you're about to learn two things you're you're going to learn what you know and you're going to learn what they know so you never have to stop someone short and say yeah 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 i know the words I, the two word the, the phrase i know is like one of the most ridiculous say, things you could ever say and i used to say it all the time when i was younger man i know and then when i got a little smarter and realize that you you can still learn something from someone else and you're not as smart as you think you start to hear some everyone else say it watch everyone that's listening right now rokas you're about to hear this like all week yeah someone is, yeah i know i was about to say i know <laughs> yeah i bet you were <laughs> And it's, it's something that I learned not to say because it's, there's something that someone is saying or there's something that you can learn from from everything. Even if they're saying something you already know, it's weird because they're going to explain it differently. They're going to add some kind of personal touch. And uh, oh, saying I know is a sign of uh, much maturing yet on the horizon. Rule number 10, be precise in your speech. Yes, this is um, one of my seven levels of uh, self-development is uh, observe, observe your speech. Listen to your language. I learned that from Stephen Covey. Um, listen to your language. P pay attention to what you're saying. Make sure you're not putting yourself down, affirming the negative, um, creating uh, a self, uh, uh, self prophecy. Um, listen to what you say when no one's listening and see if you're making yourself even more negative and hateful. And there's nothing wrong with being positive. There's nothing wrong with that, even if it's annoying. Rule number 11. Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. Okay, so <laughs> rule number 11 is awesome. It's about positive masculinity. It's about not being a nag and a tyrant. And it's, it's about understanding how, how men develop appropriately and how women develop as well. Um, but how we all develop proper masculine channels within ourselves. And both women and men have both sexual channels within them, uh, feminine and masculine is not, it's got nothing to do with gender. It's got everything to do with the physical body and the thing that we're all encased in for this lifetime. And it's got everything to do with how spirit intertwines with yin and yang. But specifically, men, men are dominant in masculinity. Women are dominant in femininity. So that is true. Rule number 11, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. I'll be honest with you. I forgot what that one meant. Um, is it loving everything around you? Like is that what it is? I, I, I'm I, presuming it's something like that. And it's funny because I, it's the last rule you think you would remember. Um, but I'll give you a hint. For those wanting to read Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, the answer to every um, rule is in the last page of the book, of the pa page of the chapter. Okay, so I, all I had to do was take chapter 12, rule number 12, and go to the last, the second page to last of the chapter. To reveal, so to reveal the answer, dogs are like people. They are the friends and allies of human beings. They are social and hierarchical 
and domesticated. They are happy at the bottom of the family pyramid. They pay, they pay for the attention they, they receive with loyalty, admiration, and love. Dogs are great. Cats, however, are their own creatures. They aren't social or hierarchical. Hierarch hierarchical. They are only semi-domesticated. They don't do tricks. They are friendly on their own terms. Dogs have been tamed, but cats have made a decision. They appear willing to interact with people for some strange reasons of their own. To me, cats are a manifestation of nature, of being, in an almost pure form. Furthermore, they are a form of being that looks at human beings and approves. When you meet a cat on the street, many things can happen. If I see a cat at a distance, for example, the evil part of me wants to startle it with a loud poof sound from teeth over bottom lip, front teeth over bottom lip. That will make a nervous cat puff up its fur and stand sideways so it looks larger. Maybe I shouldn't laugh at cats, but it's hard to resist. The fact that they can be startled is one of the best things about them. But when I have myself under proper control, I'll bend down and, and call the cat over so I can pet it. Sometimes it will run away. Sometimes it will ignore me completely because it's a cat. But sometimes the cat will come over to me, push its head against my waiting hand, and be pleased about it. Sometimes it will even roll over and arch its back against the dusty concrete. And he then explains a, a story about a cat specifically and explains the meaning of that rule. If you pay careful attention, even on a bad day, you may be fortunate enough to be confronted with small opportunities of that sort. Maybe you will see a little girl dancing on the street because she's all dressed up in a ballet costume. Maybe you will have a particularly good cup of coffee in a cafe that cares about their customers. Maybe you can steal 10 or 20 minutes to do some little ridiculous thing that distracts you or reminds you that you can laugh at the absurdity of existence. Personally, I like to watch a Simpsons episode at 1.5 times regular speed, all the laughs two thirds of the time. And maybe when you are going for a walk and your head is spinning, a cat will show up and if you pay attention to it, then, it, then you will get a reminder for just 15 seconds that the wonder of being might make up for the ineradicable suffering that accompanies it. Pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. That's awesome. I forgot about that, that, that rule. Uh, and it's so true. So true. So I'll, I won't go any more into that. He actually, that's a pretty amazing chapter. Um, everyone should everyone should read that book it's a little religious there's a lot of christianity but hey relax try to extract the gems from it and, and if you're not christian leave 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 the christianity and you can still get the benefit um just quickly would like to add would the final chapter summarize to gratitude or is it yes yes oh, you're absolutely right you're absolutely right gratitude so that was, of course, Jordan Peterson's um, 12 Rules for Life at the end there and his uh, works, Maps of Meaning, and his philosophy on life, chaos, and order. One of my favorite parts in Maps of Meaning, and one of my favorite philosophies of Peterson um, is highlighted here, and that's how we'll end the episode. The dragon limits the pursuit of individual interest, the struggle with the dragon against the forces that devour will and hope constitutes the heroic battle Faithful adherence to the reality of personal experience ensures contact with the dragon. And it is during such contact that the great force of the individual spirit makes itself manifest. The hero voluntarily places himself in opposition to the dragon, 
The liar pretends that the great danger does not exist to his peril and to that of others or abdicates his relationship with his essential interest and abandons all chance at further development. Interest is meaning. Meaning is manifestation of the divine individual adaptive path. The lie is abandonment of individual interest. The lie is fear's statement that could not really be the case, that did not really happen. The lie weakens the individual who no longer extends the range of his competence by testing his subjectivity against the world and drains his life of meaning. The abandonment of meaning ensures the adoption of a demonic mode of adaptation because the individual hates pointless pain and frustration and will work towards its destruction. Rebirth is reestablishment re of interest. The rebirth of interest moves the individual to the border between the known and the unknown and thereby expands adaptive competence. Self-consciousness means knowledge of individual vulnerability. The process by which this individual comes to be can destroy faith in individual worth. This means that an individual may come to sacrifice his own experience in the course of his development because its pursuit creates social conflict or exposes individual inadequacy. However, it is only through such conflict that change takes place and weakness must be recognized before it can be transformed into strength. This means that the sacrifice of individual, individuality eliminates any possibility that individual strength can be discovered or developed and the, the world itself might progress. Meaning is the most profound manifestation of instinct. Man is a creature attracted by the unknown, a creature adapted for its conquest. The subjective sense of meaning is the instinctive governing rate of contact with the unknown. Too much exposure turns change to chaos. Too little promotes stagnation and degeneration. The appropriate balance produces a powerful individual, confident in the ability to withstand life even more able to deal with nature and society, each individual unique finds meaning in different pursuits if he has the courage to maintain his difference. Manifestation of individual diversity transformed into knowledge that can be, eat, that can be transferred socially changes the face of history itself and moves each generation of man farther into the unknown.